The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So it's nice to be here today. Feel the spring energy in the room. And uh, it's always interesting that if you're new, we've been covering some of the more subtle and uh, hopefully more sublime teachings from the Buddha these last weeks. Uh, Some of you are using this complimentary text from Guy Armstrong called Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. And if you are, we're in chapters 15 and 16 this week. And uh, it's just uh, interesting how our mind... You know, when, whenever we're on the edge learning something that we don't quite understand, right? We have different, you know, depending on our personality, different mechanisms. Like some of us, I'd probably put myself in this camp, is like pretending that I got it when I don't have it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got it. And maybe that's more of a traditionally male thing to do, you know, because uh, it's embarrassing to like having heard it to not get it, like to know that I don't get it. That's, that's sort of being vulnerable in a way that I don't like. So, or, or you may just presume because it, you don't initially completely get it that you'll never get it. That would be another sort of personality habit, you know, the, uh, it's beyond me, or a third would be more the rebel, like whatever the, whoever said this, they don't know what they're talking about. They're wrong, <laughs> right? And so, but one way or another to dismiss it, like to dismiss the actual learning to, by presuming we know it. See, then we're no longer a learner if we presume we know it. We're in the business of pretending and looking like we know it, not actually learning it or, you know, learning whatever's next to learn, seeing what we haven't seen before. Or presuming we'll never get it because we're not good enough. That takes us out of the learning or that the person's wrong, that there's nothing of value in the teachings. Right? So you can think about when you uh, were a child or when you're around children, younger children, and they're in that place of learning. And uh, it's really you, the one characteristic when a child's really learning is there's joy. right? Because learning is joyful. Being on that edge of knowing that we don't know knowing that the heart is in the vicinity of learning something new, seeing something that it hasn't seen before. Even we even then, when we were a kid, but when we were around kids, we heal that, hear that squeal, you know, when that of delight, when they're learning something new, when they're discovering something new. It's fun. And so with these teachings, it's useful to have that same attitude when we're looking at the more sublime teachings. Last week, just to review, I mentioned that there's this general move in practice from gross to subtle, right? So one of the reasons there's such a big emphasis on developing mindful awareness is we need this stability, clarity of awareness in order to go from the habit of just seeing things on a grosser level, and I'll kind of define what I mean by that, and developing the capacity, the stability, the clarity, the interest to see, to understand things in a more subtle, in a more subtle level, sublime level. 
And by gross, I don't mean sort of the concreteness, or I do mean the concreteness, but the concreteness our concepts or ideas give. So when we say our attention is kind of stuck on a grosser level, it means that we're lost in thought most of the time. And that's a, you know, that was an evolutionary step that humans, maybe other species too, but you know, through the use of language and just the complexity of language, we're able to construct these abstract worlds like I'm at Common Ground on Sunday morning. And, and then that has, there's a certain static reality to that concept. I'm at Common Ground at Sunday morning and I'm me. Right? It feels all of that, those ideas together feel quite substantial. And from our practice point of view, that's a gross, not in a negative way, in a sort of simple or ordinary way, worldly way, that's a gross way to be experiencing the present moment. Doesn't depend on a more subtle, sensitive, nuanced presence. Because that's just commonplace to run into a human being that has some abstracted construction of their mind, mental images and concepts, right? And that's what they're mostly attending to. So I mentioned last week, well, we go from that to training our mind to be interested in the specific characteristics. And this is a big part of what you hear people talking about and Buddhist mindfulness practice circles, you know, like can you feel your leg lifting when you're walking and coming down and making contact with the floor when you're placing your foot down? Can you feel the breathing in, the sensations of breathing in? Can you hear that background sound of the blower in the basement? You know, can you feel, I can, the cool air coming out of the open windows above me, right? Can you feel the coolness or maybe in your place in the room it's warm? Can you feel the warmth? of the air against the skin, like on your cheek or the back of your hand? Can you feel the hardness or the weight of the buttocks, the sits bones on the chair or the cushion? So these, in the practice world, we call these the specific characteristics of experience, right? But it's a, it's a world we sort of know, right? I mean, none of this was a big leap for anybody, I hope, to sort of you know, feel, touch, hear sound, see sight, as sight. But we're just not there. I mean, we visit that place often, but then we mostly go back to our thoughts about things. Like I'll see somebody I recognize, and there will be a moment of form and color and shape, or hear a sound that I recognize. There will be a moment of that actual hearing being known. But then very quickly the mind retreats to the thought it has about that moment of hearing or that moment of seeing or that moment of touching. Like when I mentioned the sits bones making contact with the chair and cushion, for a moment, most of the minds in this room touched in to that sensory experience, right? You kind of felt the actual moment-to-moment sensations there. But then very quickly, you maybe noticed your mind was in, oh yeah, I'm sitting, that's why it hurts like this, or that's why those, right? And we're in the story that the mind has about the touching experience. But it's different than the touching experience. So we can train ourselves to be more fluent, more regularly connecting and sustaining awareness at this level of specific characteristics, 
Hearing is just hearing. Seeing is just seeing. Touches are just what those are. Touches being known. Thoughts, mental activity being known. And in this world, I mentioned today and last week, for many weeks really, it's kind of wild because there are so many specific characteristics through the five physical senses and then even through thoughts being known as just a thought being known, just that mental activity, right? Because we can know a thought in two ways. One is being, in a sense, absorbed or caught by the content of the thought, but it's also possible to notice a thought just as a mental phenomena without being lost by the content or caught up in the content of the thought. Oh, this is the mind thinking that thought, right? That would be seeing a thought just as a mental movement, right? Oh yeah, that's what the mind, the thinking mind is doing. It's thinking this thought. It's not so easy with thoughts, right? Because generally when we try to be aware of thoughts initially until we get some momentum or practice, when we sort of take the attention and want to see a thought, do you notice? No thoughts. <laughs> but that's, you might think that's like being a good practitioner, but actually it's a, a more, you could say, advanced state when the awareness l- looks at the thinking mind and the, r- and the thoughts don't hide. You know, thinking just kind of keeps doing what it does. But now there's sort of a reflective awareness that knows that thinking's happening. And see, that's a really important mental muscle because then you can be aware of thoughts without being lost in the content of the thoughts. And you can learn what thoughts are and what they're not. You have to be able to observe natural phenomena in order to understand them. And this is really the whole essence of this place of using specific phenomena paying attention at this level of reality, like, oh yeah, touching, hearing, smelling, tasting, touch, uh, seeing, hear, uh, thinking, right? These different six aspects, right? There's the mental activity in the five physical senses. Is the mind begins to distill the underlying and, and turns out to be more relevant aspect of these specific characteristics of experiences coming and going, which is, that they're coming and going. So now, this sort of even more sublime way of paying attention, we notice that everything's changing. That's what attention, the wisdom is paying attention to. Things are changing. doesn't matter if it's noticing that thoughts are changing or sounds are changing or sights are changing or sensations are changing, smells, tastes are changing, but it's just another, and it's studying that. It's paying attention to the ephemeral, changing, insubstantial, and therefore limited, unsatisfactory, and impersonal nature of whatever it is that the knowing mind can know, because it's changing. So you see, we're stabilizing awareness so we can unhook from being addicted to the meaning or thoughts construct, and now we can pay attention to the specific characteristics of what's coming and going, uh, and then we start to notice the universal characteristics, it's called in, in this tradition of Buddhism, that things are changing. And because of that, because it's a process of change, always changing, always becoming the next thing, it's unsatisfactory. There's no ground here. It's impersonal. Nobody's making this happen. It's just conditional, just cause and effect. 
And that, seeing it on that more sublime level, that more subtle level, then the heart lets go. It's just the natural result of seeing things as they are in this more subtle level is the heart, the mind, doesn't presume attachment makes sense. It just lets go. It just starts to relate, engage, live life, but without attachment or with less and less attachment. And that's just a natural organic process of awareness going from gross to middling to subtle, right? And to do that, we need this, to develop this mental muscle we call mindful awareness, this capacity to be aware of the present moment, to be not forgetful of the present moment, to have this reflective awareness. And so this sets up this, you know, I mentioned last week this discourse the Buddha gave. It's uh, called the lump of foam because he, he gave, uh, you know, there's two ways of looking at reality. One is the six ways, you know, the five physical senses and mental activity or being known. And the other common way the Buddha talked about the experience of being a human being is as the five aggregates. It's the, really the same map but he just divides it up different. So he has the body here, the five physical senses here, and then he breaks the mind down into four important categories or activities of mind. The feeling tone <coughs> that's associated with each contact, each experience. The perception, the part of the mind that names experience. Mental formations or volition, intention is this more catch-all category of mind. And then consciousness. And I mentioned last week that the Buddha says the five physical senses seem substantial, but they're actually like a lump of foam, right? And the feeling tone, the pleasantness and unpleasantness of our experience, it seems substantial, important. Like when something's unpleasant, that fact seems really important. But he says it's ephemeral, like a bubble that forms when a raindrop hits the ground and there's that momentary bubble and then it's gone. Well, and I mentioned this last week, we've had a lot of pleasant and unpleasant feelings in our lives. Where are they now? They're gone. But in the moment of feeling something really unpleasant, it seemed really substantial. But was it actually? I mean, even really unpleasant things that have happened to us, you know, when we get a little distance, we realize, yeah, it seemed in the moment like this huge truth, but it doesn't exist anymore. And whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, that's the truth. Isn't it about feeling? And perceptions are like mirages, he said. And mental formations, these mental constructions, these intentions we have to fix our life, to do something, to get rid of something, they're like something that seems substantial, like the big trunk of a banana tree, but actually when you peel away the surface of the banana tree, there is no heartwood, no heartwood actual substantive wood in a banana tree. And at the end of the season, they just fall apart, right? Which is sort of surprising because they look pretty substantial if you haven't seen a banana tree. And then consciousness, which I want to talk a little bit more about today, he calls it a magician's trick. And it's really interesting about consciousness. And one of the interesting things about consciousness is it throws... Scientists, neuroscientists, biologists, philosophers maybe, 
you know, it kind of throws them for a loop. Because we have a pretty uh, fundamentalist view, most of us just being raised in our Western culture, of you know, what you, we could call materialism. And we just trust that this material reality, whatever it is, it exists in its own sense. And it doesn't matter whether I'm here, you know, like if I died or the, the physical material reality would continue. And we're just, we don't doubt that. Does anybody doubt that? <laughs> there was always somebody who, but. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just seems so obvious that whatever material reality is, it's its own thing and that whoever I am, I mean, at least from the materialist view, my sense of me, well, I'm something that comes out of this material reality. Consciousness, my body. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the body does from our materialist point of view. And in it's even though it's hard for biologists and neuroscientists to explain how it happens, there's even a pretty, like, we'll figure it out eventually attitude about how consciousness comes out of this material reality. You know, meaning, you know, there's atoms and then there are molecules and a bunch of those make up cells and then a bunch of cells make organs and like the brain and and all that activity together, you know, with everything else, the sensitivity of the organs, like seeing and hearing. And then there's some natural materialistic process then that will explain consciousness, even though they can't explain it yet, as far as I understand. So that's one view. But that's not the Buddha's view of, right? He basically, I think, uh, you can find this in his teachings, um, what, you know, what we call materialism, he would sort of reject out of hand as some kind of fixed view that ultimately is not true. Maybe helpful, like a lot of science that has allowed us to solve sort of material problems like feeding ourselves and medical science and things like that come out of the study of this abstraction of materialism, right? We abstract the body, you know, we create these maps of anatomy and all this sort of stuff. We map it out and then we experiment and we figure some things out like how to build buildings or how to do operations on a body or how to you know, find medicines at work. So there's reasons for materialism. There's a place for it. It helps us understand, negotiate, navigate our lives in a way. But when we are reflective, when we're using the mind to reflect on what's happening we realize that actually all we ever know is our subjective experience. And we've talked about this over the last six months. And so it's, it's kind of shocking when we realize the simple truth that our reality is sort of reflective in the way that a mirror reflects an image. That's how we know the world. So like if we were all standing in front of a mirror and looking at a mirror and 
Guy Armstrong uses this as an example in chapter 15. He's kind of relating when he was on retreat, and he did this during a retreat time. And, and just realizing that, you know, the idea, of course, is, well, that's me. You know, we look in the reflected image on the mirror, and we say, well, that's me, right? And, th- and it seems really clear. But by extension, it's like because how we know whatever the world is, it's always known in the mind, right? Through, like when we look at seeing, you know, it's interesting even about color. When I look at a black cushion, right? I mean, there's some, who knows what kind of process. I mean, this is what materialism says. There are certain photons. And the photons that are coming and hitting the rods and cones or whatever it is in your eyes, right? That's actually, like I say, well, that's black. But the blackness, it. You know, the scientists say that well, all the other colors are absorbed by the object, and it's black that's not absorbed, right? So that's reflected. So is the cushion black? What do we mean that the cushion is black? Well, what we really mean is, in my subjective experience, there is the appearance of what I call blackness, right? When I look at the cushion, or brown when I look at the floor, or cream when I look at the color of the walls, right? There's that appearance. And at that appearance, where is that appearance? Well, it's in the mind, right? That's what we know. We know this reflective appearance that arises in the mind. That's all we ever know. The most profound experiences of our life have been these reflective appearances in our mind. And as a reflective appearance, it's not very substantial, like even the lectern, which I can pick up, I can touch, I can feel the, you know, the different edges, and I can see it, you know, I can make touch it in a way that there's some sound. I can explore it in all these different ways. I have my emotional history with this lectern, built, you know, a long time ago in the early years of Common Ground by Mary McCann, one of our longtime members and leaders. But Actually, all of that emotional content is a thought, a very ephemeral mental activity, right? The emotional vibrations and mental images. It's that, as a subjective experience right now, internally, is not much of anything. Nor are these touches and the sounds and the visual experience, none of that is very substantial, the idea has the appearance, the idea that there's a lectern here and it's been here at Common Ground for over 20 years. That idea is substantial in the sense that it creates the appearance, the static appearance of something substantial. But the experience isn't very substantial. And like I said at the beginning of the talk today, when we make the effort to stabilize awareness, present moment awareness, so that we can go from just being mostly caught in our thoughts about things as we live our lives to training the mind to be interested in the specific characteristics of seeing and hearing and touching and thinking and smelling and tasting to wisdom developing and distilling the awareness of the specific characteristics into the truth that everything is changing. Everything is insubstantial, ephemeral, not worthy of being grasped, not personal.
and really looking at that, looking at those three universal characteristics of change, of the unsatisfactory or the limited nature of every experience because it's so ephemeral, that it's so impersonal how these touches and smells and tastes and thoughts and emotions arise, are there for a moment, fall away, so that the next moment of experiencing can arise, persist for a moment, and then cease, and then the next. And that leads to the letting go, the spiritual letting go, or the spiritual awakening, or freedom. Right? The word nibbana, nibbana, or nirvana, as it is in Sanskrit, means the cessation. It's like the cessation of clinging. So freedom, awakening, doesn't mean that I got someplace holy. It means that this activity of the body and mind lets go drop something, abandon something. And that something is attachment. Attachment or clinging or struggling persists only because the mind is misunderstanding, misperceiving what it is to be a human being. So the resolution of that basic spiritual problem is to cultivate or develop this mental muscle so attention can go from gross to subtle see things more and more as they are in the subtle level, right? And seeing things as they are transforms the habit where grasping seems appropriate. Grasping, attachment, taking things personally seems functional. That's at the gross level. Looking at things from this gross level, which means, again, looking at things in terms of what the meaning our thoughts construct or the meaning our thoughts tell us. So we're taking the appearance of the present moment to be a substantial reality when it's just a reflective appearance. Right? Then attachment makes sense from that, because clearly that's where we are most of the time, and then most of the time attachment makes sense. Like if somebody does something really stupid and and plows into the back end of our car, it makes sense to be attached. Like, this shouldn't happen. That person should have been paying attention. I'm going to get their insurance number and they're going to pay for it and his or her insurance is going to go up and that's the way it should be, right? Because we're sort of fixed on that idea that sort of the meaning, like this was not my fault, this was their fault. And the way the world should work is, you know, and then when it doesn't work, we get really attached. Like, why didn't that work? Why didn't that person leave their insurance number? One of our teachers, Anita, who lives close by, she was parking out right here on 26th Street, not too far from the center, and she was in her back uh, seats getting some stuff, and so her back door was open, and, and this was like 10 o'clock at night. Someone turns around the corner driving too fast and knocks her back door right off. And she was just standing like 10 inches from where the car hit the door. And it kind of, when it, it hit, it broke the door, but it, it did kind of slam back into her body and bruised her. Right, so these, I forget why I mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe because it seems substantial. <laughs> and the attachment feels so real. Like, however the mind clings to whatever story it has, like, 
I mean, even if you're sort of an enlightened person, you might think, oh, the person's probably just drunk. They probably have had a bad life. They're trying to manage their pain by over-drinking, and when they drink, they can't drive. You know, we need more treatment facilities <laughs> and universal health care so you don't have to pay for treatment. But even clinging to that, even though that's like a relatively, I think, wholesome way to think about it, still the attachment, clinging to that idea, we miss the opportunity to realize, well, that's just a thought. You know, and the bruise, well, that's just sensation. You know, and the, the seeing the purple of the bruise, that's just seeing. You know, and maybe we have some nausea of seeing the big bruise. Well, that's just those sensations. And then telling my friend, you know, hey, Julie, you know what happened to me? That's just that. You know, that's just like wanting to connect or wanting to entertain or whatever. But everything is just that appearance, that reflective appearance in the mind. And as that, it's really not much of anything. One moment after another. This is why in you know, different Buddhist schools over the centuries, these sort of images of the dreamlike nature of reality. And this is, you also find this in some of the mystical yoga traditions because Buddhism and, and yoga intersected and danced together for a long time in northern India, uh, many centuries. And back then it was, you know, in India generally, I think still today, it's very inclusive of different religious spiritual ideas. And um, although now I think there's more nationalism around Hinduism, but uh, at least as the historians describe it back then, it was a very fruitful discussion among the different sort of views of things. And so there's, there's this long history of cultivating that view, which is very different than a materialist view of things. And it's interesting, we can think that materialism is sort of like boldly honest. Yeah, you're born and then you die. It's just atoms and molecules. You know, it, can, it kind of looks empty. But to realize that, see, having a map and clinging to it is the problem. It's not that, you know, because even a physicist who may be very much a materialist might say, but you know what? On the level, the subatomic level, it's all space anyway. There's nothing there. But what's there is the clinging. That's the problem. It isn't the story. Like You can have a very ephemeral story, like even Buddhist emptiness story. right? But if the mind is clinging to it as reality, then there's a problem. So the whole point of having these talks and these books and this, you know, the, this tradition of practice is to do things that lead to the letting go of attachment, the letting go of clinging. That's the whole point. It isn't that this point of view is correct and materialism is wrong, is as it is this very functional thing. When you use this point of view and, you tr- and you're inspired to train your mind to be more attentive in the present moment so you can see things in a more subtle level, you will notice letting go happening. You will lo- notice the space more and more of non-attachment as you just live your normal life raising your kids, working your job, trying to make the world a better place, there will just be a lot more space of non-attachment because attachment depends on delusion, on misperception. And when that's gradually eliminated through cultivating a mind that can see things as they are, 
They're just appearances in the mind. That's what experience is. It's an appearance in the mind. And that appearance doesn't last very long. It's not personal. It's not, and it's not like a claim, a belief claim, like that it's not worthy of grasping, not worthy of attachment. That's the actual result of seeing things from the subjective point of view as just appearances in the mind, is that attachment just doesn't happen because it doesn't make sense when the experience is understood in that way. So after these two chapters, so I'm going to be teaching on the East Coast uh, for the next two Sundays. I think, Patrice, are you teaching next Sunday? Yeah, and then I forget who's teaching the following Sunday, but um, we have a great line upcoming. But uh, when I come back, we'll pick up then the last part of this book on awareness and compassion. So um, Guy is going to be talking more about consciousness and awareness. So that's where we'll be going. But we have a few minutes before the children come in, probably time for one or two comments from your own practice that you'd like to share with the group. Or if you have a question about what I said today, anything come to mind? Yeah, John, you want to start and then we'll go over here. Um, so when you were talking about uh, the ephemeral nature or that you know, materialism is just a story, um, I was thinking of other things that you've, that you've uh, talked about quite a, quite a bit is that what Buddha teaches is the suffering and the end of suffering. He's not necessarily teaching how to do physics or all these other things. And so um, what I'm wondering is, if that's true, you know, does it matter what we think as long as we're not attached to whatever we think about the world? Well, that's, that's for us to check out. Like, when we're not confused by our thoughts, like I can tell you from my direct experience, when there's a lot of wisdom in the mind and some unwholesome thought gets triggered because of maybe external causes and it brings up some judgment or brings up some you know, hateful thought, but there's a lot of wisdom in the mind, so the wisdom sees that thought, and what does wisdom see? That's just a thought. It's just an appearance in the mind. It's something that's there, and then it goes. No need to get attached. No need to be identified. No need to even be a Dharma practitioner who needs to practice to make the hateful thought go away, because it's going to go away anyway. Why do I need to construct this idea of being a Buddhist practitioner who's going to do some skillful Dharma move and make the hateful thought go away? Right? So, so from that point of view, a wise person isn't afraid of having despicable thoughts and isn't confused by having really sublime, beautiful thoughts. Right? It just knows what to do with thoughts because we're still participating in the world, but I'm not going to like wisdom would know, don't participate with that thought because things are going to get, you know, you're going to hurt people. Like why would the why would we do that? Well, just kind of a quick follow up is, I mean, from my experience for a long time, I believed that the world is just two things: space and tiny bits of stuff that move around in that space. And, uh, but I don't doubt any of things that are going on here. Um. And it doesn't seem to get in the way of my, uh, uh, I mean, I can feel, I can be unattached in that worldview. 
But that's the point, right? Because this is the, the thing that the Buddha did that was so useful and pragmatic. It's kind of like a slap in the face. He says, there's only one relevant thing going on here, folks. There is this experience of being a subjective human being and the suffering that comes with it. And anything you do that causes you to lose sight of that will get in the way of you resolving the problem, the only problem there is, which is suffering. Beings are suffering. What can be done to alleviate that suffering? And this whole quest for metaphysical truth, if it isn't coming out of this basic subjective experience that all of us have collectively of suffering and the end of suffering, it's a waste of time. And I think uh, you being one of them, you know, a lot of philosophers would probably agree you know, that it hasn't helped address human suffering. Yeah, kids are here. We'll have to let go. Yeah, let's let them in. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.